Coming up on episode 21 of Verse Chorus Verse, what happens when two heathens decide that they want to learn about one of the most complex American composers ever? Well, you're about to find out. Welcome to Verse Chorus Verse. With me, as always, is the forever challenging me musically Sven Knutsen. Sven, how are you doing tonight? I am so excited to see how excited you are for the conversation we're about to have. I've been waiting for this. So we are not alone tonight. We have Dr. Charles Corey here, who goes by Chuck, correct? That's right. That's right. He is the director and curator of the Harry Parch Instrumentarium. And what I said makes no sense to, I'm guessing, about 92% of our listeners, which I didn't know either until about a few months ago. But you're about to learn because it's incredibly fascinating stuff. Dr. Corey got his PhD in musical theory and composition. Did you go to Pitt? University of Pittsburgh. All right. Go whatever though. Are they Panthers? Panthers. What are they? Nice. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Woohoo. Do you reside in Seattle? I did for a long time. The last year sort of shuffled things around, but that had been my base of operations for the last uh, six years. He is a composer as well. Your lists of compositions, you have quite a few. Is there one that you're currently working on or putting on? I'm in the middle of a couple of projects right now. A recent piece, I guess from maybe three years ago now, Courtship Dance of the Jungftak is being recorded later this year. And I'm finishing up a new string quartet for performance in August. I think, and I'm sorry, my notes are terrible because I usually have a second laptop, but I'm traveling. So I'm having to use my phone. Is one of them called This Journey? Together This Journey. Together This Journey. Thank you. Yeah, that's yeah, a, that... I can't believe I forgot about that one. That's for the Seattle Symphony. It was going to be premiered about this time last year and then, oh. of course, indefinitely postponed, oh. but it's coming soon. Good. What we are doing here is we are learning about, I should say, Sven and I are learning. Chuck knows plenty. Yes. <laughs> we are learning about a gentleman by the name of Harry Parch. Harry Parch... Oh boy, who actually I shouldn't even try this. Why I, I'm are gonna you? go Why to are doctor. You going to try? There's an expert with us. Exactly. You almost stepped in it, David. I did. So Chuck, in the most basic of senses, who was Harry Parch? Uh, Harry Parch is a lot of things, which makes it tough to sort of distill uh, the essence of uh, the the way to really boil it down to the fewest words would be he was a artistic creator of American music, stemming from the Depression era and sort of following the various changes that happened sort of worldwide after that time, but you know, coming out of the Depression and sort of the way the world changed, and especially his portions of America, which at that time were the Midwest and the West Coast. But what he's known for more than his music are uh, this collection of more than 50 musical instruments that he invented and hand-built himself with assistance, but uh, you can see his handiwork in all the instruments. And he built them specifically to play his music. That's very well put. Sven, I actually want to ask you, because this all stemmed from a joke on like our third episode. I made a joke about Sven giving me a, a fairly complex artist. And Sven said, just wait till I give you Harry Parch. <laughs> and 
And here we are. Yeah, and then Sven knows that I am a, just a deep rabbit hole goer and became obsessed with this. Parch is um, dangerous for that. Yes. Yeah. Sven, <laughs> when did you first hear about Harry Parch? How did you get involved in Harry Parch? I, involved is, is probably giving me a lot more credit than really I think I, yeah. When I was maybe 15 or 16 in high school, there was a jazz improvisation class of which I was the sole student of uh, the band teacher, Eric Jensen, who I think we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. And one of the things he liked to challenge me with is these assignments to listen, mostly just soak in. He would give me homework that was just to listen to things. And on some of the fringes of uh, most of it was I was a saxophone player. So a lot of it revolved around Charlie Parker and Sonny Rollins and Coltrane and all your big bebop sax guys and then more contemporary guys like michael brecker and things like that but he always liked to give me things that would challenge he could tell when i was getting comfortable and one of them was john cage <laughs> that blew my mind a little bit and harry parch was definitely one that i can't remember if he played something for me first or just said, okay, here's what I need you to go home and listen to this weekend. But I was so confused at first. I do remember thinking, I don't know about this. <laughs> like my my first reaction, to, and I can't remember what the first piece was that I heard. But I remember being just so overwhelmed with <laughs> how I couldn't wrap my head around the music. At this point, I'd, I'd played music since I was three. But the microtonal stuff. You want your 12 note well, octaves. Yeah, that, not your... that, yeah, I had. <laughs> yes, exactly. And also just the way the way harmonies work, things like that. There's a certain sound to Parch's music, which I'm not even going to try to describe or get into at this point. That was just kind of. Yeah, I knew that it would be something that from the feeling I had in high school, if I flipped it and gave you Harry Parch as an artist uh, on one of our exchanges, I knew you're a rabbit hole guy. And I knew that there was so much uh, <laughs> just in the music. I think I actually sent a video to you. It was a YouTube video. Oh, of him discussing, I think you're discussing instruments. Yeah, you were given like a tour of all the instruments. You were playing some. It was kind of, yeah. And somehow... You two connected, and here we are. And I still don't know how. All you got to do is ask. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, it really you, is. You're with us today, Dr. Corey. Oh, happy um, to be here. How, what about you? How did you, did you discover Harry Parch in college? Like, how did you discover Harry Parch? Yeah, I think probably 99 or more percent of people have had one of the experiences of the two of you. Either teachers said, listen to this and tell me what you think, or friends said, hey, listen to this and tell me what you think. <laughs> and then there's very few of us who, like me, just walk into a room full of these instruments and oh, your life wow. changes in that instant. So I went to my undergrad uh, at Montclair State University, which is a school in northern New Jersey. And I enrolled as a composition student, didn't know anything about Harry Parch, didn't know that his instruments were there, but they were. And my first day there... There was this orientation for the incoming freshmen, and the Parch Ensemble at that time was directed by a man named Dean Drummond. Everyone on the faculty gave a short one or two minute spiel about, here's who I am, here's what I do. And he said every word that I wanted to hear as a 17-year-old composer looking for something. He's like, new sounds, more notes, unique instruments. <laughs> so as soon as this thing was over, I thought, wow, everyone in this auditorium is going to want to be there. I got to go. I got to get there first. So I ran out of this thing down to the room where the parch instruments were, and I was the only one who went. <laughs> so I got a private tour from Dean of the instruments that were out. Wow. 
Uh, and again, I mentioned earlier, Parch has more than 50 instruments that he invented. Some are small, hand drum size. He's got, well, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of these later, but um, mm -hmm. he's got guitars and the adapted viola, these smaller scale instruments up to these huge sculptures. And so the room that I got to probably had about 30 or 40% of the instruments actually in the space, plus some others. We had uh, instruments that Dean himself had invented and some other things, but I got to get my hands on all oh, wow. these instruments, hear the sounds, play a few notes, and then I just haven't stopped since. That's fantastic. <laughs> I joined the ensemble right away. He had a student ensemble that he ran and I jumped in. I said, yeah, give me any parts that are left. I started on some of his percussion instruments, moved on to his string instruments, moved on to taking voice parts because he has wow. these beautiful vocal works that we couldn't find vocalists to do. And I'm not a trained vocalist, but I wanted to play this music so badly. I was like, fine, I will do it. I'll take any, any challenge. And it turned into me learning how to repair and maintain and tune the instruments and, you know, on and on. And so Dean passed away in 2013. And at that time, there was no one with the experience that I had of, there were a lot of people who came through the ensemble, but no one had really taken apart all of the instruments, had learned to read all the notation, had gone to all these lengths. So the opportunity was, do I run the ensemble or is it over? Not a tough choice. Right. <laughs> this is amazing. There's been two times so far that we've done this podcast that I've been so excited for <laughs> an episode. And this is definitely one of them. So thank you so much for being here. We'll go into more of that because I actually, if you, I didn't even think about the fact that you must have played some of his parts, which that in itself is got to be an entire experience so it is it's yeah it can really it's my performers from my ensemble will say it's life-changing and i have to say that <laughs> because it's my ensemble and like it did change what i would be doing but there's really nothing like it seeing his notation on the page and getting your hands into these instruments and it's just unreal we're going to get a little more into who harry parch was and then after that we'll talk a little bit more about his instruments and and what his so many questions so many questions. I, yes. Yeah, but we we got to start with the most important part of the night. Uh, uh, what are we drinking tonight? I'll start with you, Sven. What I, What are you drinking? Oh, I'm drinking a head full of dynamite. It's a hazy IPA from Fremont in Seattle. I like it there. I like it there. Northwest. Yeah. What are you drinking tonight, Chuck? I've got a Lagunitas Maximus IPA out of Petaluma, California. One of many places that made its way into Parch's music. And that's, so I'm really bummed because I wanted to do a more Southern California or Southwest drink, but I'm at a hotel and the hotel, the hotel thing was closing and it had like three beers in it. So I'm drinking a blue moon. For, <laughs> I really wanted to try to come up with some last minute, weird, insightful. This is why I'm drinking blue moon in honor of Harry Parch, but there's, I got nothing. I can't so, help you there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with that, we're going to take a quick break. And then we are going to get into the, the man that was Harry Parch.
are back. Once again, we are here with Dr. Charles Corey, and we're going to go through just some very basics of Harry Parch's life and then really get into the meat of it and who he was and the very obvious reasons why I really dug into this guy and why he's just a fascinating guy. He was born in 1901 in Oakland. I'm going to have to keep asking you, Chuck, but I think he spent most of his life around the Southwest, right? He was very transient. He considered California his home, but in total, yeah, it's hard to say offhand how much of his life he spent there, probably about half. And then the rest, like you say, was through the Southwest, Illinois. He traveled a bunch. He was a hobo during the Depression, mm-hmm. and so he spent time all across the American South and through the the plains and any place that he could you know, hop on a train or hitch a ride, that was where he was going that sort of lifestyle ended up following him through his career. He, please correct me if any of this is wrong, but I believe he wrote his first composition when he was about around 14. I mean, it was pretty quick once he got to his 20s that he really started questioning traditional European composition. Is that fair? Yeah. Before he even attended uh, University of Southern California, he had already decided that it wasn't the right fit for him. And halfway through his first semester, he just left. He was learning all the things that he that he wasn't interested in. I know that his parents were missionaries, and I think they mostly were missionaries around, was it in Asia specific? Yeah, they were in China, and his parents had fled the Boxer Rebellion to Oakland just before Harry was born. Wow. So they got there like uh, just over a year before he was born. They settled in Oakland, and their experience from being in China and then you know, on missionary work and then suddenly having to leave... His mother dove further into religion and his father sort of abandoned it. And so there was this pull just from that perspective in his home life. And Parch found himself completely disillusioned with the idea of organized religion. So many of his influences seem Far Eastern influences. It seems like being almost insulted by his parents' missionary work. Why would you want to change this culture or because he does a lot of his stuff seems to be really influenced by very, very traditional cultures. Yeah. There's sort of two parts in that. One is, yeah, he was very interested in looking backwards and he would often say as he would write this enormous piece that people would say, wow, this is the new direction of contemporary art or something. He would say, no, I'm looking backwards. This is what could have happened if we didn't forget that, you know, music has a human connection and music has a theatrical connection. And all of these things are just part of a, creating this uh, corporeal art. So he, he definitely saw himself that way in terms of looking back. But also the Asian influences in part came from his own home. His mother would sing fragments of Chinese lullabies. Uh, they had some things that they had purchased or collected in China that came back and were things in his home. And then as he grew up and moved through the Southwest, he became uh, aware of music by Native American cultures, of Mexican cultures, and would write about how that was as influential to him as hearing freight trains passing in the night would sort of find their way into his later mm-hmm. music as well. So he's very interested in in music being, you know, not something that's specialized for the concert stage and you put on your tuxedo and you put your music stand in front of your face and you execute flawlessly. He wanted personality and the human body at work to be part of it. Music as part of the everyday environment, part of your everyday life kind of a thing. Yeah, he would he would call it ritual music making. Oh, Predestined like that, that these 12 people are going to meet at this time and create something and then it'll never be seen again. Yeah. Do you think that's why he was so into the microtonal work? When I listen to a lot of his music, it's all very different, but there is a lot of 
to a layman's ear like myself, it almost sounds like he wants to keep it to talking. It's not a traditional, you know, I'm hitting this note, I'm hitting this note. It's kind of almost a, well, it's microtonal, which I guess now would be a good time that you could kind of explain to people what that even is. <laughs> yeah. So it, Parch was really interested on this full spectrum of, of the space between pitches. Uh, I mentioned a little bit that he didn't enjoy his studies at USC because it was teaching him the stuff he didn't want to learn. What Parch was really interested in was the human voice and how it operates. He was interested in natural spoken inflection, which has nothing to do with these 12 rigid gradations. It's about sliding from one place to another. You can sort of just by the inflection of the way someone says something, you can interpret more meaning than the text itself gives. And he wanted to explore that as a composer. 12 tone equal temperament, which is the tuning system most of us are accustomed to. It's what you find on a piano or xylophone or what have you. That system doesn't really allow the degree of flexibility that Parch wanted. And even just dividing it further in half into quarter tones it still was only an approximation of an approximation of what Parch was after. So he, after leaving university, went into libraries and did his own private study and discovered for himself, uh, discovered just intonation, which, um, let's see, how much time do you want me to spend on just intonation? I have nowhere to be tonight. (laughs) Basically, it's making everything whole number when you're dividing. Well, yeah. I don't know, but okay, I'm close. And so that's, yeah, I, that's where that the, the temperament <laughs> part comes from, for whether it's equal temperament or looking back historically, like mean tone temperament, well temperament. Temperament means you're taking these pure intervals and just adjusting them a little bit so that they can all fit this keyboard instrument or whatever it might be. So the equal temperament fits these 12 notes so that they are all the same. The half step between C and C sharp is the same as the half step between F sharp and G, and up and down the instrument is not going to change. And what that actually is mathematically is a logarithmic division of the octave. Okay. What Parch was looking at was this pure multiplication and division of numbers to get somewhere. So we would look at a piano and we'd play a C and a G and we'd say, okay, here's our perfect fifth. And in just intonation, Parch would look at that same thing and say, no, that's the interval three, two, because the higher note vibrates okay. three times for every two times the lower note vibrates. And so everything in Parch's language and in just intonation in general uh, is in terms of frequency ratios. And that tells you how does this pitch vibrate compared to your reference pitch. What Parch loved about this system is that it's infinite. You can extend it uh, in either direction, up or down, by whatever degrees you want. Uh, It's also infinitely replicable. So if you can create this minor third from here, you can use that same minor third on top of it or a different one. And somewhere else in the scale later in the piece, if you need to evoke that same thing, but you're in a totally different key area, you can just repeat those same gestures by multiplying by whatever your ratio was. And so to not jump too far down this particular rabbit hole, uh, (laughs) what it did for Parch was it gave him a way to notate spoken voice. And once he was able to do that, he could accompany spoken voice with whatever he wanted. It could be accompanied at the unison because he notated it out. It could be accompanied at various different types of thirds in any kind of way he wanted because he could listen to something somebody said, write down with incredible precision the inflection of their speech, and then set it to music. Wow. That's just the ear training involved. This is why I still can't wrap my head around this. Yeah. Just how do you hear it? Did how he, did he takes hear time. it? That's wow. Did he have a general reference note? Did it depend on the instrument? Did he just pick a random... Yeah, Parch's system was all based around G. Why did he pick G, do you know? Eventually, since you wanted to build instruments, you sort of have to choose a place where they're all related, or mm-hmm. else you've got an ensemble that you've built that can't play together, and it's a nightmare. 
So when he was inventing his first instrument, the adapted viola, which we'll get into later, the lowest string on that is an octave below the G on the violin. It also okay. happened to be near the bottom of his vocal range. So I think it was a convenient place to say the lowest pitch on my first instrument and about where my own voice runs out. This is the foundation. And then we'll build from here. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> He had been working somewhere in music before the Depression. Yeah, he was studying in London and then came back from that trip and it was the Great Depression. So he just was thrown back into America at a point where it was a different country than what he had left. And that's when he decided he was just going to be a hobo and travel around. And Yeah, without seeing too much other opportunity for himself and finding like a lot of young men in their mid-20s at the time, like this is the situation. Uh, he took work where he could get it, and when he couldn't, he hit the road. Yeah. And so a lot of he spent a lot of that time keeping journals of interesting things people said and notating out their inflections with the tuning system he had developed abroad. And but that was the the world he was thrown back into. I haven't gotten a chance to research enough on him. I could have researched him for a long time, but what I did notice very early on is he did have that kind of beatnik Jack Kerouac look on life of he felt very alienated like we talked about with the missionary stuff and he was also gay and that was back in the time where you weren't that's just wasn't a thing that just wasn't what you could be and, and I, he, he struggled with that since childhood it's very very not surprising to me that that's the road he took choosing to not be an outcast but you know but to do be, it his way exactly he didn't really make any compositions during that time did he did he still invent he was writing a lot right he, he was, was writing and sketching and, and keeping notes and these these sketches would turn into parts of u.s highball which is this um okay this beautiful he called it the most creative piece he's ever written uh, and i think in a lot of ways he's right it's a an autobiographical setting of some of his own time, you know, as riding the rails. And like I said, just this hobo experience that otherwise in America at that time, it was either ill-documented or a caricature. There were very few people giving legitimate, uh, honest insights about what this was like. Even of those who were doing it, few of them had lived it to the extent that someone like Parch had. He's not alone in this, but having already decided to go this outsider route and then now being part of a culture that's a different outsider experience just the world he was in at the time was, uh, there's really not much else similar to it. I think I'm definitely not alone in the first time I heard his works. Uh, my ears weren't ready for it. <laughs> they really weren't. But then I got to the works that included uh, the letter. Gee, I was glad to hear from you. Believe it or not, pal, I just received your letter today. It must have followed me all over the world. But it got to my wife, and she broke it open and read it and sent There's a collection of four pieces he grouped together. Barstow, The Letter, San Francisco, and then U.S. Highball. And those four works are called The Wayward. And sort of at large, they comprise this autobiographical work of his. U.S. Highball is the most direct connection. It's really about his own journey from California to Illinois by train. But the other ones all tie in somewhere. The Letter is a beautiful, a beautiful example. This is a letter that another hobo wrote to him. Uh, mm -hmm. And he just took it and set it to music, this really simple sort of undulating background, which is a really clear example of some of his early harmonic, uh, oh. not only early, this would persist through his career, but his harmonic interest in something he would call tonality flux, which are these two chords where just very gently they oscillate back and forth, pitches moving through voice leading that's much smaller than a semitone. 
And so if you hear this with an ear that's not experienced in the system, you're like, okay, I think one of these chords is out of tune, but I'm not sure which one because they both sound like pure triads. Yeah. And so in the instance of the letter, it's a pure minor triad and a pure major triad just going back and forth, but they're offset by just a, roughly a third tone. And so you, you're unable to sort of settle into that. And then if you listen to that with the ear of someone who's been doing microtonal music for ages, it's just like, oh, wow, there's a really interesting voice leading. You spend enough time with the music and it does start to make sense. Uh, but yeah, the letter is just this beautiful love song, basically. He took this letter that he got from a friend. And one of the weird things about the hobo experience that Parch was trying to convey is, you know, you're in a boxcar with somebody for three or four days, spending very intimate time getting to know them, and you never see them again. They get off the train, they go this yeah. way. You get off the train at the next stop and go that way, and that's it. So to receive a letter from someone who you spent this much time with was really remarkable. That was the first work of his that I heard that really kind of, it definitely didn't click yet, but it, I started to feel. Did it click like, yet? Does it, has it clicked for you? No, 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 no. It's, I, I'm, got, still, I'm still <laughs> working on it. Clicked might have been the wrong word. That was the first time <laughs> that I actually felt like I kind of understood. And that was also when I got really excited because I've always been a big, I love any of the hobo going into the beatnik stuff. I, I love all of it. Uh, it was just another one of those things that really made Harry Parch stand out to me. So he did that. What was the next actual grant or or whatever you want to call it that he got? So we, yeah. yeah, we've kind of jumped around a lot in the chronology already. Sorry. No, yeah. it's, it's almost <laughs> impossible with him. It's one of the issues, and it's a, it's a good thing, but one of the issues that makes it hard to track is that Parch would write a score and then, you know, after inventing 10 more instruments, you'd think, oh, U.S. Highball always needed bamboo marimba. And so now oh. we rewrite it. And the score that was originally from 1941, rather, now dated 1955. And it, you know, has some of the same elements as the earlier version and some things that are completely different. It can be really difficult to track all of this. Uh, but Parch's earliest work was when he invented the adapted viola, which was he worked on on and off between 1928 and 1930. And to look at the instrument, it just looks something like a weird viola. It's mm -hmm. the regular viola body with an elongated neck uh, that he ground down from a cello neck. So it brought the lowest wow. tone on the viola from a C on a standard viola down to the G below that. You hold it between your knees to play it. So it's something like a, a smaller cello. And um, in the fingerboard, Parch set several metal brads next to the string. So they don't work like frets to stop the string, but they sort of work as like a musical braille to find discrete stops within his system. Uh, and wow. then with that instrument, he wrote 17 lyrics by Li Po, which are settings of 17 different poems by Li Po or, or Li Bai, who was a Chinese poet from way, way long ago, whose poetry Parch was enamored with because it was about very simple, profound emotions. And that was something he felt he could really capture with this system. So he wrote those works and then it was a long stretch, again, due to the Great Depression, where he was unable to do too much work. He invented his adapted guitar, wrote mm -hmm. some of these hobo pieces for guitar, and then sort of his instrumenta instrumentarium started to grow, and he added more things to it. At some point, he did a performance of some of these early works at Carnegie Hall. He was able to get some Guggenheim funding uh, and various, not small funding, but sort of short term to complete this project write mm -hmm. the book Genesis of a Music, which is the book Parch wrote about his theories, his philosophies, his instruments. 
Yeah, it's right here. And it's maybe what top five hardest reads I've ever tried to read yeah. in my life. It's, if you oh go from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you're in big trouble. <laughs> you well, got to pick and choose in this one. Yeah, I was in big trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm fairly well read. You know, that book, that book kicked my ass. <laughs> it's it's really tough to get through. Parch starts the book by basically rewriting music history to explain why he is and who he is and what he is. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not ready for that, and he uses new terminology for things that we already understand, which I appreciate because he's trying to prove his point about, you know, well, don't call it an octave because you call it that because there's eight notes between, but that's only because that's the way the scale you invented works call it a 2-1 because it vibrates twice as fast. <laughs> and I understand that, but it makes the opening of the book much more difficult to read. It really does. <laughs> and even to like these little pithy tongue-in-cheek remarks in his uh, glossary where he's like, a note is the term for a blob of ink on a piece of paper. He yeah. just is like trying to completely do away with these terms, which I understand, but it makes it so much more difficult to actually read this thing. It's actually funny that you say that because most of the parts that I have highlighted, it's kind of, oh, he's a really snarky human. He is. <laughs> yeah. And if that part was a second book, <laughs> if we had the part where he just explains what he wants <laughs> and then the part where he shares his innermost feelings about it, I think people could get through those two volumes a lot easier. As it is, it's a great resource. It shows you, like you're saying, a lot of his personality you can get through this book and then understand a lot about what he's trying to say, but it's a, it's a difficult read. Do you have a work of his that touched you more than the others? Or I don't want to say a favorite, but one that spoke to you more than the others did. Again, it's coming from a performer's standpoint, but he's got a score, Castor and Pollux, which is a dance work. For me, it was the first piece uh, for which I performed on one of his stringed instruments. Playing on his percussion instruments, the layout is different and sort of sometimes a little bit difficult, but Very. it is a percussion instrument. And so I wasn't a trained percussionist, but I had a percussion background. And so I knew how to approach an instrument where you strike a bar with a mallet and, mm -hmm. and that elicits a tone. I'd never played a string instrument before. And certainly, even if I had, there's nothing that compares to his kathara, which is a seven and a half foot tall instrument with 72 strings stretched across the space in the middle, uh, lined up in 12 <laughs> groups of six. The four sets on the outside of the instrument have these Pyrex rods between strings and soundboards that you can move to adjust the pitch. So you get these long gliding tones. And Castor and Pollux opens with a whole passage of just these gliding tones for like a minute. The cathara part is just these really precise glides of the rod to move from one ratio to the next and the strings are sliding all over the place. Oh and by the God. time I learned the first page of that music, I was like, the cathara is the instrument for me. I don't need anything wow. else in my life. Because <laughs> uh, awesome. he, he, he wanted performers, right? He wanted people using their whole body. He wanted musicians... And that were actors and dancers. and Exactly. He kind of called this idea corporeality, that the music was of the body. And when you play his instruments, you realize there's actually not another way to do it. To handle this physical space, you're going to move in an interesting way, whether you want to or not. Uh, there's passages <laughs> like his bass marimba is, 
if he had you play the highest and lowest note at the same time, you have to like lean into the instrument to reach the two bars on either end. It's an amazing <laughs> physical gesture. And he knows that when he writes that in the music that my player is going to look like this. Uh, and the same thing with the cathara, it's like you're up on a raised platform. So the reason it's seven and a half feet tall is because he wanted this pure resonance for the lowest strings. So the instrument is its own resonating chamber. And so it has to be a certain height. So in order to play it, you're standing on the resonator, which is a box on the back of the instrument that's like 18 or 24 inches tall. Uh, so you're already on a platform above where many of the other performers are. And now you're doing this really weird, interesting stuff with your hands and you're like reaching through and around the sides of the instrument. After I'd learned the first page of this thing, there's only four pages of music, but after I'd learned the first one, I, <laughs> I just, I knew this was uh, an instrument that was changing the way I thought about music. And so every time I hear that piece, that opening cathara gesture, it just, I have that same memory. So I, I want to jump in with a question about how, in the process of learning to play the music, how do you know you're at the right frequency? That to me seems like the hardest thing to grasp. How do you know when you're playing a right note? Because my ear would trick. That's kind of what, what I was just going to ask is tablature. What's his tablature like? Which is kind of the same question. It's kind of the same bit. question, yeah. So every instrument in his instrumentarium has its own tablature. So if you've learned to play the bamboo marimba, it helps you 0% when you're learning to play the harmonic canon, except for you understand a little bit of his idiosyncrasies. That's insane. Learning the second instrument is a little easier than learning the first and the third and, and so on. But none of the information on the page translates. It's that you understand Harry Parch a little bit better. Um, wow. For the cathara, since that's kind of where we are, it's set up with 12 sets of six strings. And so each one of those has a number, one through 12. So you'll see on the staff uh, a circle note head filled in above the staff and a three on it. Okay, that's the highest string on hexachord three or something like that. And so for all the pitches in the middle, if anybody wants to <laughs> get a little bit out there on this, um, if anybody at a certain point in listening to this is trying to figure out what am I talking about, uh, if you go to harryparch.com, there's a page that just says his instruments and you can see pictures of all of these things to maybe see what I'm talking about a little bit easier. Uh, but so the eight hexachords in the middle of the instrument are all just tuned with guitar or mandolin tuning machines. And so before every rehearsal and performance, we tune them and then they'll okay. be the right pitch. But okay. then the ones on the side with the Pyrex rods that you bend sort of like a slide guitar, uh, here you have to basically retrain your ear. Again, for me, I've been doing this for a really long time, closing in on 20 years. I can hear the difference wow. between all these things. But when you're first learning the instrument, there will be something on that page that says, uh, set the rod at 15.8. Now move it to 10.9. And so there's like a ruler next to the rod that has all these things written on it. Just like if your piano said A, A sharp, B, C, instead of having the keys laid out. Okay. And so you put the okay. rod here and then you play your note and then you move it and you play it again and eventually your ear hears this difference. Man. So when someone who's been on the instrument a long time goes to play the part, they could see it and they can hear it and they just know, okay, this is the gesture that goes bah, not the one that goes bah, and they've got that in their <laughs> ear. But at the first time wow. you're at the instrument, you're like, I can't even tell if I know that I've changed the pitch. Oh, so, okay, I'm ethnicity. I'm half Chinese. And this reminds me of trying to learn how to speak Chinese because your voice, your intonation changes slightly and a word or a vowel can have a completely different meaning. It's, it's a different word. And he's doing that with music. What you just 
you saying two things that to, to <laughs> David and I, and I'm sure 98% of our listeners sounded exactly the same, but they were two different things. Yep. Like, yeah. That's the and that's the other thing with Parch's music is, and this is less true for his string parts, but he tries very hard and he's not always good at it, but he tries very hard to be generous to his vocalists. And so if you're doing a, he calls it intoning voice because he's not after speaking. He's after, like we said earlier, this sort of speaking, speaking type of performance on pitch. So if it seems to you as you're going through that you're supposed to be in tune with the bass marimba, then you probably are. Or if it seems like you're supposed to be the major third in this triad, you probably are. He's not trying to make it too hard, at least in his, <laughs> his philosophy. Uh, in practice... It's hit or miss. There are some pieces where the vocal part is just really that, tough. Yeah. But there are other ones where you're in unison with one of the instruments the whole way through for three minutes. And as an audience member, you don't really perceive that as, oh, this baritone is getting help from the harmonic canon. You just hear it as this interesting blend of sounds. I want you to describe to me what a tonality diamond is. Sure. Tonality diamond is not Parch's invention. It's sort of a just intonation theoretical tool. Okay. Parch is credited with it a lot, I think just because he wrote a lot about it. And uh, his instrument, the diamond marimba, is a physical manifestation of this theoretical idea. But the tonality diamond is basically a matrix, uh, a harmonic matrix. And so the way Parch sets up the tonality diamond on his diamond marimba is he takes the overtone series of his 1-1 one, one of a G and then just builds up in thirds from there up to uh, the 11th partial, which is the sixth distinct tone. Okay. To get into ratio language for a little bit, we have our 1-1, one, one, then our 5-4, which is the just-in-tone major third, the 3-2, which is the perfect fifth, 7-4, which is the dominant seventh, which is one of several possible minor sevenths, then the 9-8, which is uh, the major ninth, and then the 11-8, which is sort of, it's kind of like a C quarter sharp. Okay. Uh, <laughs> an 11th plus a quarter tone. We don't really have an analog once you get that far up. Uh, but that's his six-note basic 1-1 one, one overtone series, which he calls an O-tonality. And then to go down from there, those same intervals. So we went up a major third, now we go down a major third. We went up a perfect oh, okay. fifth, now we go down a perfect fifth, etc. And so we get the undertone series, which is not a real acoustical phenomenon, but it is a good theoretical tool. So now we have the undertone series, of 1-1. One, one. And then from each of those pitches, we build its overtone series. So uh, from 1-1, one, one, we went down a 5-4 to the pitch called 8-5. And now we'll build the overtone series of 8-5. We went down a 3-2 to the pitch called 4-3. So we build the overtone series of 4-3. Okay. And so at the end of this, Parch's system, his tonality diamond, will have 36 elements in the matrix with a total of 29 distinct pitches. And that's sort of the starting point for harmonic exploration in his system. It's just that simple. It's as easy as that. <laughs> what were you studying before Harry Parts? When you said that you ran into that room and you knew that's what you wanted to do, what were you studying before it? So I, I went to Montclair to study composition. I had decided maybe partway through my junior year of high school that that was the thing. Were you pretty, not similar to him, but were you pretty the box and the Rachmaninoffs and all that? Did that just not really do it for you? You were looking for, you wanted something more, I don't want to say inventive, but... Were you running from Western music? Is that kind of what you're... Yeah, I think you could have asked me the day before I saw the Parch instruments, and I would have had no idea that I was looking for something else. When I was in high school, my, my band director had introduced me to things like Fabern and, um, you know, mm -hmm. some other... 20th century people who at the time I would have thought were really out there. That was really interesting to me. And I sort of thought, well, 
I like composing and this stuff is interesting. So if I go study composing, I can learn how to do something interesting. And that was really as far as it had gotten. I had no idea that I'd be playing with tuning systems or that my <laughs> compositions now would be, you know, I have a different tuning system like every two or three pieces that I'm going to explore, which wasn't the case for Parch. He stuck with just intonation. But if you've built these instruments, you better stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I didn't know that I was looking for anything else. One thing that I think really helped me was I have a very strong background in mathematics. Okay. At Montclair, I okay. minored in math. So everything that Parch was saying about here, this is how this thing vibrates. And it's, you know, it's not this exponential logarithmic system that we're used to on the piano. It's just multiplication. It mm -hmm. made sense to me immediately. He, and then I, I was in the room with the instruments so I could hear it. I could read about it. I could sit down at the chromalodeon. I could reproduce it. And I could say, yes, it makes sense. The chromalodeon is his kind of the organ he invented, right? Yeah. It's a, an old reed organ where he took all of the reeds out and replace them with ones tuned into his system. What's the count of his octave? One octave for him is how many? It varies depending okay. on the piece. He's known for a 43 note octave because at some <laughs> certain point in time, a reporter latched onto it is like the only thing they could make sense of from an hour long interview with him. Weird hobo composer invents 43 note scale. 43 and, <laughs> okay, there's a headline. So the chromalodeon does have 43 tones per octave and so do a couple of other instruments. But it really doesn't describe the music that well. Most of his pieces have fewer than 43 tones, but they're not the tones we would expect, or they have way more than 43 tones. But in terms of what he's known for, it's that 43 note scale, for better or worse. That's, yeah. Like hearing the difference between note 42 and 43. You see, I'm still back there. Like we were like, <laughs> like an hour ago. I'm like, this is what was making my head so confused. I'm still there. Wow. I wish I was uh, sitting at the chromalodeon right now doing this because the two closest notes on, on that instrument, it's very easy even for a lay audience to hear the difference between to the hear pitch. It. You know, if you really just isolate them, like in a silent room, here's this one and now here's this one, most people will still be able to perceive that. So it's not like he was approaching the limits of possibility or, or human hearing right. or that it's something right. just for musicians to sort of geek out about. There was something very real that he was trying to approach. Yeah, because I could definitely see where somebody would say, that's bullcrap. You're just playing whatever note or that's the same note or, yeah. you know. And in context, yeah. that can really throw you because you'll hear three things that are probably an A and OK, so maybe they're all the same. I don't know. But if you just isolate it, you can you can tell that he had a purpose for these. God, it's so hard to wrap my head around. <laughs> What's it like? Because you are basically responsible for the keeping of these instruments is that daunting do you feel it's a lot of responsibility he passed in 73 74 he died in 74 he didn't have a family or anything so he left all of the instruments to danley mitchell who had been his ensemble manager since the 50s uh super reliable guy the person parch would say all right direct this theater work or the person parch would say look, I need some more uh, wood screws or like whatever. He's just the guy that Parch can count on for everything. So Parch left the instruments to Danley, who was on the faculty at San Diego State University. And the instruments had been there in Danley's studio for a few years. Parch left them to him. Eventually, San Diego State said, uh, we need this room back for our stuff. So the instruments moved out to the East Coast, where Dean Drummond took over the ensemble. And then this came in to be my stuff, uh, not my stuff but my responsibility. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dan Lee is still alive and well, and the instruments are still his. So I, you okay. know, I feel a responsibility to him to do the right thing by Parch. But there are a lot of people around who worked with Parch between, you know, the 50s and, and mid 70s who 
you know, this is very important to them in a different way than it's very important to me. Like it's also personal because they knew the man who actually did all of this. So I have a slightly different relationship with the instruments and the music than they do, having never mm-hmm. met Parch. But um, being in the room with the instruments is just a completely unique experience. Over the course of almost 20 years I've been doing it, I have performed on almost every one of the instruments. And so even the ones I haven't performed on, like the ones that are only used in his really late life theater pieces, I've done maintenance work and, and cared for them. And so they do sort of reveal like a, a little personality that each instrument has and it's a really interesting thing to be part of. And so to be in charge of that, it's a really incredible opportunity. And then to get performers coming in and my ensemble that I have right now, we started in Seattle in at the end of 2014, I believe. And there were people coming in to the ensemble, whether they were uh, at the University of Washington as students, as faculty, people from the community, whatever. Uh, the music is so difficult to learn that I feel like if you want to put in the time to learn this then you're welcome. You can join. We'll, we'll get there together. So I had had these people come through and you can see, you know, some people have never heard of Parch before and they walk in the room and have sort of the experience that I had of, wow, this is interesting. Let me see if it's for me. And then people who come in and they know about Parch and they're like, I never thought I would have the chance to, to touch one of these instruments. And then all of a sudden That's they're so in cool. my ensemble and, you know, we're playing these dance pieces and doing theater works and it's stuff that they never dreamed they'd be able to do. So to be able just to offer that opportunity to people is, is really incredible. And then there's the maintenance and the tuning and all of this, which, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask, this is just like a practical question when, when you have to repair or maintain something and, and parts created all these instruments, how do you find parts and pieces? And did he create most things from easily sourced hardware parts that you can go to a hardware store and get or yeah like a lot of the bodies of his instruments if they're not an important part for sound production they'll be plywood so that you can pretty much just go and get a lot of what he what he used was either like you say pretty easy to come by or it was salvaged and things that were salvaged and perhaps easy to come by then are much more difficult now (laughs) um one of his later instruments the zymexil has a couple of hubcaps from a 1950s something Ford, I think 53 or 55. And it's like, all right, there's probably a collector somewhere in the world who has a set of those if they ever break, but I hope I don't need to find them. What's the instrument that he made it from? Was something that had been used in nuclear testing or, or... Yeah, the cloud chamber bowls. Yeah. Tell us about that. Probably the most iconic of his instruments. He did later in his life win a, an award for sculpture because these instruments are so beautiful, but this is one of the most gorgeous. By the end of his of his career, it had 14 glass bowls on it uh, that are all suspended from just this big wooden frame on these ropes that hang down in the middle. So it takes up a space of some six or seven feet horizontally. And then these glass bowls hang down in a row of four, then a row of three, then another row of four and three to get all 14 in there. And all of these bowls are Pyrex carboys, these huge 12-gallon Pyrex jugs that are cut at varying uh, sizes to produce a, a wide range of pitches. And Parch originally found them at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, where the radiation labs there were running what were called cloud chamber experiments, where they would cut a disc out from the middle of the Pyrex, like a ring, and run particles around it for cloud chamber experiments. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what the purpose of those was or what they were testing for, but then they would have a top and a bottom of this glass bottle that they would just get rid of. And Parts discovered that they look beautiful and make an incredible sound, and that became this instrument. (laughs) Wow. 
<laughs> I don't even know where to go after that. Um, <laughs> if if someone after listening to this, because well, the answer is this podcast, but I'm still going to ask. I'm going to ask Dr. Corey if someone wants to. Let's say somebody like me who. I know about music. I can read music, but it's in its most basic form. And the answer is not his book. Where, <laughs> where does one start with Harry Parts? Do you just start YouTubing or what, what would you recommend? You can get pretty deep into it with YouTube. Um, you mentioned earlier that video that you saw of me demonstrating some of the instruments. Yes. It's good to see something like that just to get a sense of the scope and the scale and you know, what are we really talking about? Some of these instruments are massive and some are tiny and the pictures in the book don't help much. I think Genesis of Music is not a bad place to start if you pick the chapters about the instruments, string and voice instruments and percussion instruments. So those are chapters 12 and 13. There you can get these little digestible pieces of like three or four pages about one instrument and then, okay, I'm done with it. Or you can flip to the instrument that's most interesting. Hart really as sassy as he is and this is complicated as his language gets because he's trying to avoid the terminology we know. He does describe himself pretty well once you're you're through that. And then it's, you know, the music. Just listen to a couple yeah. of these things and see the letter's a good place to start. Castor and Pollux is a good piece to yeah. start with. Barstow is excellent. That's a this ridiculous piece of music of basically highway graffiti. He copied down. He was on a <laughs> He was in Barstow, California, which was like a notorious place for hobos because it wasn't too hard to get there, but it was really hard to get a ride from there to go on, to go further east. Mm -hmm. He was there taking photographs and saw a highway railing that just had all of these little inscriptions from people who had been trapped there over the preceding days. Uh, and he found there was a lot of music in them, and so he copied them down and wrote this piece, again, originally for guitar and voice, and then he reorchestrated it several times. Barstow is a real Parch classic. And then, oh, and HarryParch.com. Harry Parch. It's got some good resources on there. At some point, when we're back to performing, it'll have you know updates on what's happening with the instruments and where and concert dates and things. The real best thing, unfortunately, because it's so rare, is just to go to a Parch concert. Yeah, that's I want to do that so bad now. Yeah, yeah it's there's yeah. nothing like seeing them in person and watching videos even online are, are pretty good, but to see what human beings actually have to do that's interesting in and of itself and then to feel the vibrations of these instruments and and get to see them moving and people moving around them there's really nothing like it this is a very general question so just answer as best you can what do you think his impact on music was i know it might be narrow but at the same time it seems like he must have i mean i remember one of the things i watched people like philip glass were talking about him and about how innovative he was. So do you, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think it's it's probably pretty broad. He came into looking for tuning systems before computers and technology were really sophisticated enough to, uh, to accomplish these things. He experimented really early on with vacuum tubes and just found they were completely unreliable and said, forget electronics, I'm, I'm building instruments. And I think because of that, now we have these instruments in this body of music that we wouldn't otherwise have. But he definitely was influential on the field of electronic music. He was influential in the field of these sort of 
collaborative media where music and dance and theater are no longer distinct objects, but they're all part of one uh, contiguous art. Very influential on, on composers. He always said that he had no students, mostly because he didn't want someone to come in and sort of copy him. His idea was, this is what's meaningful to me, and there's no way that it's also what's meaningful to you. So you go do your own creative thing. Wow. But there are so many composers who followed. Ben Johnston is sort of the obvious uh, first connection to Parch. And Ben worked with Harry for a long time. But uh, Harry never considered him a student. He didn't want that type of relationship. But Ben did a ton of work in Just Intonation, and his students have done a ton of work. But just uh, as music has become more accessible over the last you know, 15, 20 years through internet dissemination, Parch is finding his way all over the world. And there are popular music artists who know about Parch. And you know, the big takeaway for me is that he had this idea of what his music was supposed to be, and then he made it happen. And so someone else can also do that with their own vision. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Sven, is there anything else that you want to touch on or ask? I'm still soaking in the last hour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I feel like we could have a part two, and I would probably, yeah, this has just been so fascinating. I feel like I'm on the receiving end right now. I don't know that I have any more to add or ask because holy cow. (laughs) There's a lot to this guy. Yeah. Yeah. You already did a really good job of it, Dr. Corey, but I'm still going to ask you as just kind of a, a tag ender for this. If you could sum up Harry Parch's legacy, how would you do it? Parch's legacy, it's very complicated. Uh, because Parch was very complicated. Mm -hmm. He had this idea of this is the art I'm going to create, and he found a way to make that happen. He had a difficult life. He was very good at alienating people, specifically donors and grant writers. And usually you would choose to go the opposite way. You know, (laughs) he didn't have a residency that lasted more than a few years as a result. And so he traveled all over the place, schlepping this increasingly growing collection of instruments with him every time. But at the end of it all, He had an instrumentarium of very personal creations and a set of scores that went with them. And uh, because he knew that his instruments told the story, he was very determined to get recordings of his works and videos of performances of his music. And so he left us with a really compelling record of a very creative life. Well, this this has been one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It it honestly has. I honestly wish that exposure to this and i mean just from the perspective of music can be personal and you should pursue that personal side of music for you each of us as individuals i wish that more music students and this is just speaking from my own pat i wish that Mm. that concept and just exposure to that happened in an earlier you know earlier stage of musical education than it does because by the time you learn about Harry Parch at least for me I'd been 12 years into playing and studying music so that that seems like a really long time to learn that this isn't the only way and that Mm. there there is no set there doesn't have to be a set way it can be your way that's kind of my takeaway from Harry Parch and like I have I've got two kids I know that I'm always encouraging them to just run with their own creativity and run with their ideas and that's a lesson to anyone listening if you're in education and music i think these are good things to talk about earlier on before we get so far down the road are your kids going to be thumping harry parch tomorrow morning sven we'll see what they have (laughs) mama 
They have listened to Castor and Pollock. Good. They have listened to... Um, I can't remember what else I've played for them. We'll, we'll see. Thank you so much, Chuck. This was amazing. My pleasure. Yeah. I, I really hope that you stay in touch. I definitely want to see one of your works when that time comes. Definitely want to see when Harry Parch's stuff is able to get out there again. I think Sven and I are definitely going to have to take a trip, trip. To, to watch that and for I've sure. got some relatives, yeah. a couple of viola- violists that would be very interested to come along. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. Oh, I-